Good morning, everyone. I pray that you are all well this morning. Obviously, Sam and the family are not here today. They are taking their annual tour of the South. So let us be faithful in praying for them this week that they get much rest and relaxation down there. As Sam shared with you all last week, it will be our goal the next two weeks to finish up 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sam will be back the following week. It will be his goal then to finish out the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 16. And then starting on July 21st, we will start our summer series in the book of Jonah. Thus, I believe it would be wise for us to begin to familiarize ourselves with that book in the coming weeks during our own devotional time and study. But as for today... We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. We are in the midst of what theologians call the resurrection chapter. And if you recall from the last couple weeks, we have some within the church in Corinth who are not only wrestling with the idea of a resurrection from the dead, there are some flat out denying that it is possible for there to be a resurrection from the dead. And in dealing with that confusion and or heresy, the Apostle Paul begins chapter 15 this way. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, look at Jesus Christ. He rose from the grave. And if you don't believe me, ask the twelve. Ask Cephas, who is Peter. Ask James. Ask the 500 people who have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. The beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 is an apologetic. It is a defense of sort concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, Paul says, ask the hundreds of people that have seen him. Which leads into the second point. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits of the dead, so too can those who believe in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Now follow along with the logic. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because he did it, so too can we. But the question remains, and the question Paul will be dealing with this morning, how then are the dead raised? And with what kind of body are they raised with? And really at face value, it is a fair grouping of questions if we were to be honest, if we look at our own body, when we look at ourselves in the mirror as we age, I think we would all conclude, at times it is not a pretty picture. Our bodies, our minds, they begin to decline, they begin to degenerate, they begin to break down. I heard a joke recently about an elderly man who called 911 on his cell phone to report that his car had been broken into. He was hysterical, and he explained the situation to the dispatcher this way. He says, they've stolen the stereo, they've stolen the steering wheel, the brake pedal and even the accelerator are all gone. The dispatcher said, stay calm, sir, an officer is on the way. A few minutes later, the officer radioed back into the dispatcher. Please disregard, he just got into the back seat of the car. Our bodies, church, they decline, 
they degenerate, they break down, and eventually they will die. Thus, what then becomes of our bodies after they die? And what is the nature of the resurrection of our bodies? And that will be the question we will be exploring this morning, our thesis for the sermon. The main point we will be looking at is this this morning. That the believer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will not be raised into a perishable body. But the believer of the gospel of Jesus Christ instead will be raised in power. They will be raised in glory. They will be raised into a new, imperishable, glorified body, fit for being the presence of God himself through eternity. Again, the question is, what then is the nature of our resurrected body? And the answer, our thesis, our theme this morning, the believer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will not be raised into perishable bodies, but we will be raised instead in power and in glory into new, imperishable, glorified bodies, fit for being in the presence of God himself through eternity. So if you would turn with our text this morning, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. It is found beginning on page 961 in the Pew Bible. If you do not have a Bible, please take our Pew Bible. Consider it a gift from New New Hope Christian Fellowship. The only thing we ask for in return is that you read it. Again, our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. The Apostle Paul writes, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for wisdom and for clarity as I deliver this message this morning. I pray you be glorified. You have raised from the dead. You have conquered sin. You have conquered death. You were raised for our justification so we can be declared righteous. Lord, I pray, I do, I pray you do a work in your church this morning that you give us eyes to see the beauty of this text, ears to hear, and a soft heart, Lord. Let us leave here rejoicing that this is not the end, but there is a resurrection for those who believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll start this morning with verses 35 through 38. Paul writes, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed, its own body. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that at face value, these questions, how are the dead raised, with what kind of body do they come, I think they are fair questions. But you can tell by how Paul answers these questions, you foolish person, that whoever was asking these questions were asking in a way for them to be gotcha questions or trick questions in a hope to stump the Apostle Paul. So he launches into an initial illustration in these verses, an illustration about the plant's life cycle to display what kind of body will be raised during the resurrection of the dead. In verse 36, Paul states that the seed you plant does not grow unless it dies. And in 37, he says, what you plant is not ultimately what the seed is going to be. If you are interested in planting an apple tree, you do not need to go find a fully mature apple tree, dig that up, dig a giant hole, and plant the 30-foot apple tree into the ground. Or for this illustration, a stalk of wheat. You do not need to find a stalk of wheat with its root system, with its stem, with its leaves, with its grain, if you want to grow wheat, then you just need to plant the kernel. You just need to plant the seed, and out of the seed, something new, something greater, will grow. Now, before we continue with this point, I have done much reading on this text. And I have noticed that the secularist has enjoyed this text specifically because they have commented, and they will continue to comment, See, this is why we cannot trust the scriptures, the secularist will say. Science has proven that when you put a seed into the ground, they do not die completely. In fact, if they did, it would contradict what scientists call the law of biogenesis, that complex living beings need to come from other living beings. And the secularist would say, if the seed actually died completely in the ground, then it would never bear fruit. 
And as I read through these arguments from the secularist, I sit there and shake my head saying they are completely missing Paul's point. Now this might come as shocking or game-breaking news to you or as a news flash, but humanity, mankind, and plant kind or plants, they are not the same thing. Humanity, man, we were made in the image of God. Plant kind, plants, are not made in the image of God. When a man dies, James 2.26 says that his physical body becomes apart from his spiritual body. They are separated. Plants do not have spirits. Thus, Greek scholars Arnett, Gingrich, and Danker all agree that what Paul is saying here is simply that when seeds are separated from their stalk, when seeds are separated from their nourishment, when seeds fall to the ground, when they are buried by dirt, when their outer shell begins to decay, only then do they produce fruit. So the argument goes this way, because you can take a simple seed, put it into the ground, and it will produce a plant far greater, then of course God is able to produce a far greater body for his children when they die and when they are put into the ground. Because you can take a simple seed, put it into the ground, and it will produce a plant far greater, of course God is able to produce a far greater body for his children when they die and are placed into the ground. Which leads us then nicely into Paul's second point from the text. And remember, we are talking about in church and core and steeped in Greco-Roman thought. Not only questioning, but some are denying the possibility of life after death, and then also wondering if it is possible for God to transform a dead human body into something new. Paul's responses in verses 39 through 41, are you serious? Have you guys not seen the uniqueness of the created order? Verses 39 through 41, Paul writes, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Paul says, you're wondering if it's possible for God to transform a dead human body into something new? Look at how unique God has made the created order. How many different human bodies there are that are out there. Look at how unique God has made the 18,000 different species of birds that fly through the air. Look at how unique God has made the 33,000 different species of fish that swim in the sea. Look at how unique God has made the 5,000 different species of mammals that walk on the ground. Albert Barnes noted that although all the bodies of animals may be composed essentially of the same elements, God has produced a wonderful variety in the organization, strength, beauty, color, and places of abode. But Paul goes on. He says, but you think those are glorious. Have you seen the heavenly bodies? 
Have you seen the sun, the moon, and the stars? Have you seen how glorious, how amazing these things are? He says, consider the glory of the moon for a second. Dr. Jason Lisi says that the moon is 2,100 miles in diameter. It is about the size of the United States. And yet Genesis 1.16 says that the moon was created to rule the night. When the moon is out and it is full, it is about 2,500 times brighter than the next brightest object we see in the sky, which is Venus. And yet its glory pales in comparison to the sun. It is the lesser of the light for a reason. The sun is about 400 times larger than the moon. To put that in perspective, if we hollowed the sun out, we could fit the earth into the sun about one million times. How can we not be in awe of the glory of the sun? And the glory of the stars? Well, there's only about a hundred billion of them in our galaxy alone. Paul's point, Luke 1.37, nothing is impossible with God. He says, you don't think God can transform your dead body? You don't think God can make new your dead body? You don't think God can resurrect your dead body? Look at the glory of his created order. He transforms the seed into a 300-foot redwood tree. He transforms the caterpillar into a butterfly. He transforms the tadpole into a frog. Certainly, he can make your bodies new. But notice also, church, the splendor, the beauty, and the glory of the celestial bodies, the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Their glory is much different than the earthly bodies, than the animals and the species that walk on this earth. Paul's point is, so if God takes our earthly bodies and transforms them into a heavenly body, then of course they are going to look and be gloriously different. If God takes our earthly body and transforms it into a heavenly body, of course it is going to look and be gloriously different. Philippians 3.21 says that Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they can conform to his glorious body. To God be the glory for that church. Verses 42 through 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Brother Christian, Sister Christian, a Christian's resurrection from the dead truly is and only is the work of Christ. Why? Because what is sown, what is planted, what is put into the ground when we die, it is perishable. It is corrupted. As Matthew Poole says, there is nothing more uncomely, nothing more unlovely, and nothing more loathsome than a dead body. 
a dead body which has been sown in dishonor, meaning it has been corrupted by the acts of sin, the acts of evil, the acts of transgression, the acts of crime. A dead body that has been sown in weakness, a body completely unable to overcome the effects of sin, a dead body unable to save itself. Donald Barnhouse tells the story about a man who went in for reconstructive hand surgery. And after meeting with the surgeon and having the surgery explained to him, the man asked the surgeon if it would be possible to just use the bones and tissues of bodies of people that have already been killed in car accidents. It's very rare that we can find them soon enough, the surgeon said. The surgeon went on, the whole body from head to its foot is filled with a host of invaders that are held back by life. These invaders are everywhere and the moment death comes, they sweep out and destroy the entire body like runners that race from the starting point when the gun opens a race. These invaders sweep into the body Within two hours, the pathogenic organisms have carried their work all the way out to disintegration, and there is nothing to do but dispose of the body. Barnhouse concludes, the same law exists spiritually. When Adam first sinned, death passed upon the entire human race. In the spiritual realm, life was lost, and all the spiritual invaders swept over the entire being of man so that his spiritual nature was completely disintegrated and decayed. Henceforth, nothing that was in man or from man could ever be used to regenerate or repair their spiritual life. Church, the resurrection from the dead is completely the workmanship of Christ himself. He is the only one who can take our perishable body and transform it into imperishable. He is the only one who can take our dishonorable body and raise it into glory. He is the only one who can take our weak body and raise it into power. He is the only one who can sow our natural body and have it blossom into a new and glorious spiritual body. And how does he do that? Or how did he do that? Or how is he going to do that? Verses 45 through 49. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We get a comparison here, a contrast of sorts between the first man, who is Adam, and the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ. 
We see, for example, here in this comparison and contrast that just as Adam, the first man, was made from the earth, from the dust of the ground, the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ, is from heaven. John 8.23 says, Jesus said, I am from above. I am not from this world. In John 8.42, Jesus came from this world. It says that he is a life-giving spirit. But then, in verses 48 and 49, we get an even more profound comparison between the first man, Adam, and the last Adam, Jesus Christ. It says, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We get a comparison here between the accomplishment of the first man, Adam, and the accomplishment of the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ. Because we know that when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, We know that they gave in to the temptation of sin. Genesis 3, 6, and 7 says, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. God said to the first man, Adam, You shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the first man rejected God's word. Thus he rejected God and sin was introduced to the entire human race. Yet when the last Adam, when Jesus Christ was tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, a much different story unfolds. As R.C. Sproul observes, Jesus, who unlike Adam, faced Satan alone, not with the companion of Eve by his side. Jesus Christ faced Satan in the desert, not in the paradise known as Eden. And Christ faced Satan after 40 days of fasting, not filled with the harvest of Eden. And when Satan, playing to the starvation of Jesus Christ, said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan then took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and he tempts him by saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Jesus responded, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, Satan tried his best to entice Jesus by taking him to the top of the highest mountain and showing him all the kingdoms of the world. All of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me, Satan said. And the last Adam, Jesus Christ, responded, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It was in that moment, church, Christ not only passed the test that Adam never could, Jesus Christ aced the test that Adam never could. 
And for the rest of his life, Jesus Christ was tempted with sin, just like you or I. And yet he never gave in to the temptation of sin, which made him the perfect sacrifice, capable of appeasing the wrath of God for the sins of humanity. A sacrifice that he was willing and freely gave as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, Father, but your will be done. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins in accordance to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised in accordance to the scriptures. And to those that know that truth, believe that truth, and trust in that truth, Jesus, his accomplishment, he is a life-giving spirit. He is the first fruits of the dead, giving all of his children his heavenly image through eternity. His accomplishment is that he is a life-giving spirit for those who know the gospel, who believe the gospel, and who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we close this morning, I will start by addressing the non-believers who are here this morning. An interesting fact about the life of Benjamin Franklin is that he penned his own epitaph. He penned the inscription that is on his tombstone. Now, Ben Franklin did not claim to be a Christian, but it seems that some type of Christian theology seems to have impacted his understanding of the afterlife. Benjamin Franklin wrote for his epitaph, the body of B. Franklin, comma, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and guiding lies here. Food for worms, but the work shall not be wholly lost. For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. When we die, non-Christian, we will meet our author. We will meet our creator. We will meet our God. And our God requires perfect righteousness in order to stand in his presence. Thus, you can either perish before him based on your own sin-stained merit, condemned to hell forever, or you can stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who was pure of all sin. Romans 4.25 says that Christ was raised for our justification. Christ was raised so we can be declared righteous in the sight of God. To the non-believer that is here today, let today be the day that you confess your sins to Jesus Christ our Lord and you trust in him alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sins and the only one who can reconcile you, put you in fellowship, in relationship, in friendship with God Almighty through eternity. Let today be the day 
that Jesus Christ is your Lord and the offer of salvation is yours. And to the Christian that is here this morning, to you, brother Christian, to you, sister Christian, let us rejoice today as we leave. Let us rejoice the rest of our lives. Every time we look in the mirror and we see our frail, our fleshly, our sinful, our fallen, our corrupt bodies, knowing that without a doubt, through Christ, they will be made new. I sometimes wonder why people who claim to be Christians are some of the angriest, most frustrated, irritated people I know. How is this possible when they will be made new? As we look in the mirror and we see these fallen, fleshly, sinful bodies, we realize we need to come to the fact and to grips that they will be made into perfectly imperishable, pure, healthy, glorified bodies. It should be the delight of everything we do, knowing that this world is not everything. And yet I would caution us as well as a loving warning. Let us not become arrogant over the fact that we have that gift. Let us not become boastful over the grace we have been given. Romans 3 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it goes on and says, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No but by the law of grace. Brother Christian, sister Christian, it is Christ and Christ alone who has saved us. How? Colossians 2.14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross, and we bear it no more. Thus we rejoice this morning that as believers... We will be raised in power. We will be raised in glory. We will be raised into new, imperishable, glorified bodies, fit for being in the presence of God himself through eternity via the work of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our perishable bodies, they will be made new. To God be the glory for that church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how, how can we wrap our minds around this truth? The fact that we see these bodies that are sinful, the things we want to do, we can't do, the things we don't want to do, we do. And yet you and your grace, through your Son, Jesus Christ, we will be made new. There will be a resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ did it as the first fruits, so too can we. Lord, let us leave here today just in awe of that truth. This world, this is not everything. There is eternity with you, God. Let us rejoice over that fact that we will be made new into bodies fit for being in your glory, God, through eternity. Amen.